Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Kelly Bach, one of your student producers. Today's discussion is all about the pediatric concussion, and we're lucky to be joined by two true experts in the field. Dr. Christina Master is a pediatric and adolescent primary care sports medicine physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the only pediatric sports medicine specialist in the region with a subspecialty in brain injury medicine. She co-founded and currently co-leads the Minds Matter Concussion Program at CHOP. The overarching goals of her research are to better understand concussion and its effects on children from a developmental perspective, and to find optimal ways of caring for children with concussions in order to maximize their future potential. From the CHOP Emergency Department, we have Dr. Daniel Corwin, Attending Physician and Associate Fellow in the Center for Injury Research and Prevention. Dr. Corwin is part of the Minds Matter Concussion Research Team, and he has a particular interest in improving the diagnosis and initial management of pediatric concussion. He has led research projects evaluating risk factors for prolonged recovery from concussion, along with many investigations focusing on the visio-vestibular system and its association with concussions, as he will tell us more about today. Thanks to these experts for joining us on the podcast today to share their extensive concussion knowledge. As always, our host is Dr. Bob Belfer of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Kelly, for that introduction. Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Welcome, Dan and Tina. It is our pleasure to have you as guests on the podcast. And let's start, uh, I know Kelly gave a little bit of background about both of you, but Tina, let's start with an icebreaker. What's your favorite disease or diagnosis in the field of pediatrics? So my favorite one is actually a little bit of a holy grail in that I haven't seen it yet, and I would aspire to see it, and I don't know if I ever will. I may not live quite in the right um, part of the country or world, but I would love to see on a smear a Maltese cross for babesiosis. So I think it's possible, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I don't know. You know, when Karen McGowan retired from our ID micro lab, I thought I would probably never see one because she was looking out for me when she was there. So, but that's what I would love to see at some point. To hear a sports medicine physician talk about babesiosis, <laughs> that's great. Ratings are going to go up on this podcast. Dan, <laughs> as a pediatric ER doctor, what's your favorite disease or diagnosis to make in the emergency department? So I am going to kind of steal my answer from one of your previous podcast guests, Mark Orbeck, um, who is part of the reason I became a pediatric emergency medicine doctor when I was a med student at NYU. He was a fellow, and he and Dave Kessler showed me the amazing field of pediatric emergency medicine. Um, his answer, if I remember correctly, was SVT as a diagnosis that you get to see quickly, treat quickly, and make potentially completely better, and you get to feel a little bit like a magician and then talk through physiology. Um, so I greatly enjoy that. I also love a good nursemaid's elbow. Um, in our time of high respiratory illness burden, it's really nice to have a quick and easy nursemaid's elbow that you do feel like a magician and really get to make everything completely all better in a brief snap of your fingers. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that, Dan. All right, let's jump in right to our topic. The topic tonight is concussions. And I'm going to start with a simple question, Dan. An hour ago, a teenage football player gets hit in the head and comes out of the game, comes to your ER complaining of a headache. Tell me, Dan, how do you make, an hour after this event, how do you make the diagnosis of concussion in the ED? Or can you make the diagnosis of concussion an hour after presenting from the injury? I love that you introduced this, Bob, as a simple question, because Tina and I could spend the entire hour podcast and probably six hour-long podcasts 
talking about the nuances of this. Um, so can you make the diagnosis in the ED? Should you make the diagnosis in the ED? And what measures can you use? So historically, concussion has been a clinical diagnosis. And if you read every consensus statement or consensus paper or expert guideline, it is symptom-based. And I think we all can identify the issues with symptom-based diagnoses. Symptoms are a subjective feature um, that we rely on a patient report. And none of the concussion symptoms are specific for concussion. So there have been studies done. There's a very, very large study done up in New England by Grant Iverson, where he gave out concussion symptom questionnaires to tens of thousands of healthy adolescents and found that 50% met clinical criteria for concussion. None of them had head trauma. So we have symptom checklists that we can run through. We can ask a patient if they're feeling a headache, if they are feeling dizzy, if they're feeling off balance, if they're feeling like their brain is slowed down. And there are somewhere between 20 and 22, depending on the scale you look at, concussion symptoms. But what we are really excited about in our work at CHOP is adding some objectivity to the diagnosis. So you're in the emergency department, and I think later on we're going to talk about some of the newer cutting-edge devices that we're using out of concussion clinic. But in the emergency department, we rely on history, we rely on physical examination. And there is a series of physical examination techniques and maneuvers that take anywhere from three to five minutes but are brief, are very easy to learn, and involve testing your vestibular system. And this system is out of whack with concussion. It's the body study cam. It's your ability to track to with your eyes your ability to stay balanced it's your ability to see things and that system is often abnormal so I, I know you have some questions about that we'll get into in a second but you're going to be taking a history you're going to be doing a physical examination and you're going to be pulling parts from different toolkits because there is no single you have this or you do not have this and you have a concussion or you do not have a concussion there is no perfectly sensitive or specific test and I don't think in our lifetimes we'll have, ever have the single perfectly sensitive and specific test. Great, Dan. Tina, I'm going to ask you the same question. I know not only do you uh, your your career now is with concussions, but you deal a lot with primary care providers. So not not all these patients show up in the ED. A lot of them show up to the pediatrician. How should one make the diagnosis of a concussion? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually one of the papers that we published um, a few years back showed that actually most of the kids in our network who have concussions see their primary care doctor first because that's their medical home. So I think that's a great, great question. And we have worked um, extensively um, with primary care um, as with the ER in terms of making sure everybody is equipped with um, the most up-to-date ways that we're trying to use to diagnose concussion. And we would argue that you can make that diagnosis not only um, you know, on the sideline uh, or in the ER or in the primary care um, and within an hour or even shorter, but should. Um, obviously, I think there is a little bit of this whole aspect of, um, you know, the longer the time goes by and the more evidence you are able to, um, you know, uh, gather that points towards a diagnosis of concussion, then the more confident you are. But I think we also have to kind of think back and remember, and Dan may be too young, but Bob, I think you'll remember when we used to grade concussions, right? And when we graded them, the whole idea was there were, uh, there was such a thing as a concussion where the symptoms were so transient that they lasted only 15 minutes, you know, and they lasted half less than an hour. 
you know? And so I think those are still actually concussions and we may be missing some of those now because we're waiting to make sure that they have symptoms that continue. But if you technically think about a concussion as being a force that's applied that results in some kind of neurological dysfunction and symptomatology that resolves spontaneously, you know, there really isn't a time limit to that for sure, you know, on the you know, upper end or the lower end. And so that's where I guess I would say, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to make that diagnosis. I mean, the hard thing is, is that then we also have in this era, the issue of, you know, we call a lot of things di- uh, concussions and diagnose them as concussions. And maybe in, you know, years, decades past, we wouldn't. And so now we have kids who have, you know, three or four or five concussions that maybe, you know, in our generation, we wouldn't have called half of them or any of them concussions. And so that's another challenge as well. But but that said, I think that what we're looking for is something that appears to be a neurologically relevant event. And so, you know, in, um, in addition to a history of, you know, an impulsive force that's applied, um, it doesn't have to be directly to the head, it could be to the body, and then you have a whiplash, you know, um, a, you know kind of movement that gives you um, the injury. And that's actually fairly common. Uh, beyond that, then there's the new onset of symptoms. So as Dan said, these symptoms are nonspecific, but you didn't have them before um, the injury. And then all of a sudden you have them new and kind of in a pointed way, in a little bit higher sort of intensity way, then that gives you a little hint that that actually may be the case. And so that's helpful for people who are lay people, you know, on the sidelines, parents, coaches, you know, um, those kinds of things. Uh, But then in primary care, we would say it's the same approach. You know, um, actually it's the same approach in the ER primary care as well as in sports medicine, to be quite honest. We're just applying it in different contexts. So the history, the physical exam, we feel that it is one of those things where you're just trying to get as much information to build the case so that you can really convince yourself that this person has a concussion. And of course, the other thing that we've been trying to push out there is that if you are at all suspicious, treat it like a concussion, and then we can always figure it out later um, if it is or it isn't. So I think that's probably what we would say is the best approach. That is awesome, Tina. Thank you. Now, let me ask, you mentioned force of trauma to the head or indirect contact. Is the magnitude of the force related to the incidence of concussion or the duration of symptoms? I mean, it is with bones. In other words, the harder the force on a bone, increased likelihood to break it. We see cases in the ER where that checklist is checked, every single box is checked, and the magnitude of the force seems pretty trivial. So can you comment about the magnitude of the force and the incidence and or the duration of symptoms? That's a great question. And, you know, we're really lucky in that we have engineers um, that co-lead and are on our team. So Dr. Christy Arbogast is just um, a brilliant um, bioengineer who works with us and has taught all of us so much. And, you know, I think what ends up being the bottom line is that it's complicated. And so I think that to a certain degree, um, there is a relationship, but it's certainly not a one-to-one relationship. Um, and then ironically, um, sometimes somewhat counterintuitively, um, really large direct forces that cause, you know, a skull fracture or even a brain bleed um, don't seem to necessarily have a direct correlation or negative, you know, prognostic um, implications um, in terms of length of recovery or severity of symptoms. And so there is, to a degree, I think, a relationship. 
um, you know, but not directly one-to-one. Um, and there is, you know, more and more that we're understanding that it isn't really just the um, direct impulsive force, but it's really the angular momentum that seems to be the issue. And if you sort of just think back to the fact that the uppercuts what, what is what knocks out someone in a boxing match, um, that's really more, um, you know, of an angular force that's delivered as opposed to a direct force. And so um, there is a relationship, it's complicated, and we don't have like an easy conversion factor for that either. Um, that said, you know, people will also ask, could a really light, you know, um, you know, um, uh, impact, you know, cause a concussion? And that's also very challenging as well because of a couple of factors. You know, one is that um, there are subjectivity, you know, um, that is um, an issue with regard to reporting symptoms. And so if you're just anxious or have a little PTSD, which anybody that has a concussion might have, um, might heighten those symptoms. And maybe it's not a con- an actual brain injury, uh, but, you know, symptomatology that's just being um, elicited. Uh, then there's also the complicating factor that um, you know bumps to the head can trigger migraines in those who are um, you know that have, have that tendency, and so then you're really in a little bit of a pickle, right? Where a bump to the head does it trigger a migraine, or does the bump to the head cause a concussion, or the bump to the head cause a headache that's migraine-like that's a concussion? And so you know we're really still sorting those things out, and so I think um, it gets very complicated. But it probably has to be a reasonable impact. Um, it's not going to be you know like a feather, um, and it's not going to be um, you know necessarily something that's um, very, you know, incidental. Uh, But I do think that um, impacts that we think aren't that significant possibly could though, you know, and so I think that that's the other issue. And so we always take um, the approach, especially I think just historically with the subjectivity of diagnosis of concussion and um, for people who had persistent or prolonged issues um, that really weren't taken seriously. We want to believe our kids. We want to believe our kids and what they're telling us and then we work with them in terms of trying to sort through, you know, what is it that we have to deal with in terms of moving forward? Um, is it or isn't it? And how do we you know, talk about those things um, in a non-judgmental way? I don't think anybody is really out there trying, you know, pull the wool over somebody's eye on this. And, you know, of course, we all work with kids and adolescents. So we always have to have our adolescent radar on in terms of, you know, which way they might be either under or over reporting. Uh, but I think all that said, I think we want to take our kids, um, you know, reports in earnest. Let's stick with diagnoses. And I know, Dan, uh, you've done a lot of work with Visio vestibular exams. And I want to refer all our listeners to the chop.edu website where you can actually see, I believe there's a short video of the actual Visio vestibular exam. Dan, this assessment, this Visio vestibular assessment, how does it impact diagnoses? And is there any things that you can take in this visio-vestibular exam to a portend outcome in these children? Yeah, and I'm going to circle back to your last question and meld my answers together with um, continuing on what Tina was saying about how the impact and how severe concussion might be. And when we talk about severity, I think there are two things we think about is how bad are your symptoms and how long will they last? And one of our holy grails in concussion work is trying to prognosticate very shortly after the injury what the next few weeks will look like and who is going to be better in a few days and who is going to take weeks and months to get better. Because that really impacts the anticipatory guidance we're giving families and the journey we um, are going to anticipate them to be on. So when we think about does the severity of the impact influence the concussion? Absolutely. But it's also something like with anything we see in medicine, there's an external factor and then there's the host. And as we enter into viral season, 
if you, I think I've say hundreds, hundreds of times um, over the course of November, December, January, when parents come in with children with upper respiratory illnesses who want to know the name of the virus, that the name of the virus matters way less than the child who sustains or um, has contracted the virus. Same with concussions. So there are a lot of post factors that we know are associated with a longer recovery, and we can talk about that in a little bit. Um, circling back to the vestibular examination that you mentioned. So this goes back probably, and Tina can give us the oral history of it, um, precedes my time at CHOP, so probably about 15 years ago. Um, Tina, who co-runs our clinical concussion care with Matt Grady, one of our other sports medicine pediatricians, had picked up on a set of deficits in the vestibular system. And I kind of describe it to families as everything from eyes to brain is altered in the course of concussion with a real big focus on the eyes. So this exam is a, a set of nine maneuvers that, as I mentioned previously, one can complete in three to five minutes. And it gives you a great deal of information, diagnostically, prognostically, and then functionally. So I'll walk through a little bit what we do with the exam. And as you mentioned, and I think there's probably a way that we can include links. This is both on CHOP's emergency department pathway for head trauma, a video as well as a step-by-step -step how to perform the exam and what is abnormal. And then through our Minds Matter website, we also have a lot more information and a longer video of Tina performing the examination. But it involves smooth pursuit, which is your eye tracking an object, in this case, generally it's our finger in a single plane. Fast saccades, which are rapid eye movements between two fixed points. So we hold our fingers shoulder width apart and from forehead to chin, have the patient look rapidly in the horizontal plane and the vertical plane. We're assessing if symptoms are being provoked with these maneuvers, and if we see abnormalities, things like eyes turning red, eyes watering. Then we test gaze stability, which is the angular vestibular ocular reflex. That's your ability to focus on something and move your head around. So we hold our thumb out and have a patient shake their head yes and shake their head no and see if that provokes symptoms. We test near point of convergence, which is your ability to focus on something close to your face. So we see how close can we get in concussion clinic. They do this a little bit more regimen than we do in the emergency department, but how close can we get something with writing on it? So I often will use my ID to their face before it breaks, before a child starts seeing double. We have standardized measurements listed in our pathway of what's normal and not. And then we do a gait test. That is tandem gait walking forwards and backwards with eyes open and closed. The idea behind the all this exam is that sometimes you need to stress the vestibular system and the brain to elicit symptoms and determine if there's a concussion someone came in after an ankle sprain one of your ways to see if they actually had an ankle sprain would be to ask them to walk on their ankle you wouldn't just ask them if their foot hurts when they're sitting on the bed this is a way of walking your brain and seeing if you're eliciting symptoms with a little bit more of a stress to the brain I mentioned it's useful diagnostically. So we know that 10 to 15% of concussions that are diagnosed within CHOP have very minimal symptoms, symptoms shortly after the injury, but abnormalities on this test. So those subtle concussions Tina mentioned, you might not be reporting symptoms until you stress your brain, just like with that ankle sprain where you might not know if there's a sprained ankle until you ask a child to walk on it. So when you're pulling things from your toolkit, you're asking about following an impact, are there any symptoms that have developed and are there abnormalities on this exam? And you're pulling them together. And then prognostication, this is one of the really exciting parts of this exam. When we look at the individual elements of the exam, they have associations with prolonged recovery where children take more than a month to recover that are up to two times stronger than any individual symptom that you can elicit. So when we look at orders of magnitude, headache tends to be the symptom that is most strongly associated with prolonged symptoms. It's also the most common symptom of concussion. 
there's odds of around two and a half. If you have a very severe headache of having prolonged symptoms, double that with any of these individual measures. So you can better predict. And the third part that's really important and our big, big job from sports medicine, from primary care, and particularly from the emergency department is anticipatory guidance. And we can talk about what's appropriate anticipatory guidance for an ED provider to give. But everything I just mentioned, we all use hundreds and hundreds of times in our daily lives. So school in particular really relies on the vestibular system. You have to look up and down quickly to look up the board and take notes. You have to be able to read small print close to your face if you are about to take a test or reading a book. And if you struggle with these, it's going to define what you are and are not able to do in school. And we'll talk about a little later, I believe, the importance of early school reentry. And I think one of our unfortunate lessons learned from the COVID pandemic is the removal of children from school has a lot of consequences that go beyond just education. There are physical, social, and emotional deconditioning that happens when children are out of school. Great, Dan. It sounds like the visio-vestibular assessment is sort of like a stress test for the brain. And you get not only diagnostic, but prognostic values. Tina, focusing on the visio part of the exam, are the windows the gate to diagnose a concussion? I know you've also done some work looking at pupillary light reflex metrics in addition to the visio-vestibular assessments. Yeah, no. So I think that we do um, actually want people to start thinking a little bit about how, you know, everyone thinks about the eyes are the window to the soul, but it probably is uh, the window to the brain. And uh, along those lines, we also want people to expand their conceptualization of what vision means, right? So vision is not just about being 2020. It, uh, that's part of it. Uh, but oftentimes we basically stop short right there. You know, if you're 2020, then, you know, we tell people their vision's normal. Um, and it turns out there's a lot of um, higher integrative function that's required to actually have functional binocular vision. Um, and so I think that's where the combination, um, the interface between the visual system and the vestibular system ends up being really interesting. Um, it ends up being, um, you know, a system that basically um, is affected in concussion. Uh, one of the thoughts is that um, probably over half of your brain, actually, the networks are dedicated to visual and vestibular function. And because they're so widely distributed and not just in one particular lobe of the brain, um, that's why it's particularly susceptible to concussion, where it's not just an impact and a contusion on one lobe. Um, it's actually just general diffuse, you know, stretching um, of the neurons that are in those long tracks in the brain that are connecting and coordinating all these functions. So yeah, we're very interested in the intersection between um, vision and the vestibular system. And so um, to kind of back up and, and give credit where credit's due, um, in terms of our interest in this assessment, it started um, when we were working with our colleagues in Pittsburgh and uh, learning what they were doing in terms of vestibular um, testing. And they developed the vestibular ocular motor screen, um, which is a great exam. And what we ended up doing was essentially tinkering with it over the last decade um, to kind of tailor it to our needs in our kids in our clinical situation. And so uh, we've um, made some adaptations and adjustments. And in particular, we've been very lucky because the measurements that we do with regard to near point of convergence, which is the binocular focusing, and then also monocular accommodation, 
um, are measures that we actually learned from our uh, developmental optometry colleagues here in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania College of Optometry and Salus University. And so we're really lucky that we collaborate with Dr. Mitchell Scheiman and Dr. Michael Galloway. Um, Dr. Scheiman is a world expert on near point of convergence problems or binocular um, vision problems like convergence insufficiency. Um, and he's done all of the work, um, you know, relating to the developmental version of that, where kids who just don't develop um, convergence um, efficiently um, through childhood and have these issues um, look similar to kids who have this issue after concussion. We do have a little bit of a hunch that maybe some of the kids who have severe concussion and um, vision issues might have had an undiagnosed visual issue before. We don't know that. And so, um, you know, is the visual issue completely due to the concussion or is it interacting again, like Dan indicated, you know, the injury interacting with the host, you know, with the um, person who's being injured. So, with regard to vision, absolutely, I think that um, the near point of convergence and the accommodative amplitude are really helpful um, measures. Again, like Dan said, if you detect deficits in that, you can actually help the kids and their families understand what they're experiencing. So I think anyone who's had a concussion really realizes that it's very disorienting. It's just not really like anything you've experienced before. And so to have someone help you walk through it and explain what you're feeling um, and then how to manage it um, can be really empowering. And it helps our kids, I think, uh, feel a little bit of self-efficacy so they're not just, you know, at the mercy of this concussion and feeling helpless, but recognize that things like busy environments or trying to focus at something near or trying to track a moving object may bother them. And so how can they manage that, you know, as they're recovering? It's not going to be like this forever, but it is going to be like it longer than they would like. And so how do we manage that as we're recovering? And so I think that that's where the exam is both diagnostic and a little bit helpful from the therapeutic standpoint because the the initial management is very much supportive and framing and educating. So um, that's another thing that we find really useful with the exam. That's awesome. We're going to talk a lot more about treatment and therapies, but I still want to, I still have a few burning questions about diagnoses. Dan, you and I are ER docs. We like a blood test to give us the answer, yes or no. Biomarkers. We've been searching for them in sepsis for years, infant fever. Is there a fluid biomarker on the horizon to say concussion, yes or no? I'll start and then I'll pitch it to Tina um, because it is certainly one of the things we as a concussion firm have been looking at. It's one of the things that nationally and internationally people have been looking at. There have been at least a dozen, if, would you say, Tina, um, blood-based biomarkers that have been evaluated. There are several that have lots of problems, including several that we're looking at in our acutely and subacutely concussed children. Will there ever be a single blood test that's going to tell you you have a concussion or you don't? Probably not, but some really exciting work is happening to bring some point of care testing to places where we practice like the emergency department. And we are collaborating with a group um, out of Penn State led by Steve Hicks, where we are looking at salivary um, mRNA markers of um, post-injury that are showing a lot of promise diagnostically. And we, um, we're seeing salivary markers used for COVID. We're seeing them used for MIS-C and they also apply to physiology after a traumatic brain injury. Great. So more on the horizon, I guess. Tina, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I think um, uh, that was a great um, summary. And I would just highlight the, you know, the first ones that um, were FDA approved were actually targeted at your, you know, practice specialty, you know, in terms of use in the ER. So um, glial fibrillary acidic protein and then um, that's GFAP, and then UCHL1, which is ubiquitin C-terminal hydrolase L1, 
um, are both blood tests that actually have gotten FDA approval. But the the dicey part of it that I think it's lost in the lay press when they report, you know, blood test for concussion is that the FDA approval was, you know, to de- detect uh, bleeding on a CT scan. And so um, I know that um, a lot of um, you all in your specialty have been a little bit hesitant to sort of completely forego a CT scan if you really were concerned if the blood test told you not to do that. So I think it's not quite there yet. Although what's interesting is that there is um, some data that's been published, um, one in particular that I'm thinking of that came out of the CARE Consortium, which we were part of through our work at um, the University of Pennsylvania with their athletics department. Um, The CARE Consortium is the largest prospective cohort study of collegiate sports concussion ever conducted. And they collected um, blood to try and identify biomarkers. And there does appear to be a signal for UCHL1 and um, GFAP um, in sports concussion too. So not just in the ER setting and in the setting of blood on a CT scan. So again, you know, it's not at the point where, you know, anyone's running off to get, um, uh, you know, FDA approval for this for sport concussion yet, but there is a signal. So I think that's interesting. Um, and so we should keep an eye on that for sure. And, you know, obviously Abbott has uh, gotten um, approval for their test in a handheld uh, device using their Alinity um, platform. And so that's very interesting, obviously, to you all in the ER, all of us in sports medicine, um, in terms of its utility in the sideline and non sort of like hospital based lab settings. So I think that, you know, we're getting there. You know, there's nothing, is there anything ready for game time just yet? Not yet, but we're getting there. Um, I do think that, you know, things like um, my microRNA and saliva are really interesting, not just from the ease of getting the sample and also, um, you know, the potential utility for diagnostics and prognostics, but also um, for the interest in terms of helping us understand the underlying physiology, pathophysiology, and biology. So so there's a lot of exciting stuff out there with regard to that. And I think um, we just need to keep an eye on, you know, all of our colleagues that are doing biofluid work, um, and we're starting some as well. So hopefully we'll have some stuff to report back soon. Um, but, you know, to date, what our group is really focused on then in terms of trying to fill in some of the gaps in understanding um, is thinking a little bit outside the biomarker box, which is typically everybody thinks blood. And then now people are expanding to like saliva and potentially urine and other things. But we would even expand further and say, well, what about physiological biomarkers? You know, and so that's sort of what we've been focusing on. That's how we landed on something like pupillary light reflex metrics, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, and then we've also been looking at other things like infrared eye tracking and functional near infrared spectroscopy. So again, uh, both trying to see if there's something that will end up being useful clinically, uh, but also hopefully um, we'll learn some things along the way as well. The cool thing about what Tita's discussing with some of these physiologic markers is that they're directly tying into treatments. And when you get to treatments, we're going to talk about some of the exercise rehabilitation where that comes from is autonomic dysfunction, which is one of the things that these physiologic markers are picking up. So it's really one of the really exciting things about researching concussion is that there's so much we don't know that everything we learn, we're able to really rapidly translate into our clinical practices, both in the sports medicine specialty, specialty clinic, as well as the emergency department where we practice. I think that's an awesome overview. Again, I think, again, the diagnosis, like you said at the beginning, it's clinical, but all the exciting things going forward to help us make it easier for us to make the diagnosis and pinpoint what is a concussion, and as Dan alluded to, using some of these tests from a prognostic standpoint. I have one head scratcher before we leave diagnoses. Mother comes in with her two-and-a-half-year-old child, okay, who fell off a play slide, has a little bump on their head, neurologic looks fine. I'm about to hand them the head injury handout to be discharged, and they say, Bob, do they have a concussion? 
Dan, how do I diagnose a concussion in a two-year-old, in a three-year-old that I see in the ER with that scenario? So we have a paper that Tina's going to talk about, about concussion in preschool children. And it's probably underdiagnosed. Think about all the things we talked about that with these physiologic markers, gait, balance, eye tracking. Those are all things that toddlers use as well. So a child, a toddler can be altered in the sense that while they have a normal GCS, we're not worried they have a brain bleed. They may be a little bit more tired. They may be a little bit more fussy or emotionally about, and they may have issues with balance and eye tracking, just like a school-aged child or an adolescent will. When you get into treatment, it's a little bit easier in the toddler age group, just because this age group tends to not try to push through things. So they tend not to do things that bother them. So compared to the teenager who might be trying to push through symptoms to be on their phone or to be in school or to be in sport, a toddler generally has the perfect idea of individualized rest. And we're going to talk about precision medicine and tailoring our rest protocol to the patient. They know what they're feeling and they're acting on that in the moment. Great, I Tina. Loved, yeah, I love Tina's thoughts as um, she certainly sees these these kids in her clinic as well. Yeah, I do. And I have to say, I'm the only one in my practice because the rest of my practice is reluctant to see kids that young because they're a little bit worried about the difficulties and the challenges since they're not typical sports patients, right? But I think that this is where the fact that we're all pediatricians comes in handy and really makes a difference. And I do think that the fact that I um, have been in general pediatric practice now for going on 29 years that helps a little bit too, you know, uh, and interacting with younger kids regularly for a long time. Really what we would talk about is that you have to adapt how we approach the diagnosis in older children, adapt it when we're looking at younger children, but it is adaptable. It's not exactly one-to-one, but I think that conceptually um, it makes sense to people who are pediatricians who are used to thinking developmentally. And you might have to reach back a little bit, you know, if you were a typical adolescent sports medicine doctor um, to what you would uh, do with a two-year-old. But it really is about, again, the history of um, some kind of impulsive force, you know, and often it is a fall in that age range, um, and then some kind of behavior change. And so the symptoms are not going to be self-reported necessarily. They'll probably be manifested, obviously, but the toddlers are probably not going to tell us per se, although some might, and we have had some who do, uh, but then a lot of them are going to be parental reported. And that's actually something that we do rely on, even in older kids and teenagers, you know, where we ask parents, you know, what they think in terms of what they're observing in terms of changes in their kids, because sometimes the kids don't have enough self-awareness to know that they have those changes. And the behavior changes are, are they can be the whole range. And actually, when we um, you know looked at our cohort of zero to four-year-olds in terms of those who had concussion diagnoses, there was a decent subset, I think it was about a quarter of them, actually did demonstrate or the parents reported visuo-vestibular deficits. And so whether it was, you know, having difficulty with balance, like, so they're not great with their balance. They have a wide base gate anyways, if they're only two years old, but it was worse than it was. Right. And so that's the thing. I mean, parents will be able to tell you Um, it's, you know, they're not, you know, they're not on a, you know, balance beam like a gymnast, but um, their balance is not as good as it was before. They're stumbling, they're tripping, they're falling over. And so then, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, visual fatigue, kids can push things away if things are bothering them, or they'll grab their head if it seems like their head is hurting them. And so these are all obviously extrapolations and interpretations, but if it's not their normal, that's a change. And it's a change associated with the injury. 
The other thing that we found really more common in kids this age too is that they have um, more, I guess, I don't know what I would describe as more like, you know, vegetative functions that are affected. So their sleep is affected, you know, their appetite's affected. And then I think that whole self-regulation piece that Dan described where, you know, they will limit themselves. Well, yeah, they'll limit themselves because they fall apart and have a meltdown, you know, and so you can have them. We'll talk about regression actually, so that a four-year-old starts to act like a two-year-old because their stamina, their brain stamina is like a two-year-old's now. It's like they need a nap. And that's why they're having a, a meltdown um, and they need the nap because they have a concussion and they don't have the stamina they normally have. So that's sort of how we'll think about that. And they can be more emotional, sad, clingy, you know, or even a little bit like, you know, ornery, you know, and haul off and, you know, punch their sibling or I mean, those kinds of things will be reported. So kind of behavioral kinds of descriptions. So we would say, yes, we think you can diagnose concussion in that age range. And do we think that you should? I think so, because I just think that, you know, when you talk to parents, they will say, yeah, that was definitely a change. And, and when when you even get a history for a kid who's a little older, they'll say, well, you know, when they were two, we'll say, well, what happened when they were two? And what were the symptoms? And they'll say they had no symptoms at all. Then we'll say, you know, you had hind- had injury, but no concussion because there was no manifest, you know, change in behavior. But if the parent says, oh, they slept a lot for a couple of days and then they were like really clingy and they kind of stumbled around, but then after a couple of days they were better, then, you know, when you say, I think that might have been a concussion, the parents will say, yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, it's sort of like a gestalt that way. And so so I do think it's possible. I think we should look for it. Um, you know, and so that's where we would probably leave it at. Like, you know, I, I don't think you should hesitate to make that diagnosis. Um, I think there's ways that you can shore up your confidence in making that diagnosis. And then there's definitely the possibility that they don't have it, right? They have a big goose egg. They have no symptoms at all. They had a head injury, but they don't have a concussion. And that's totally plausible as well. Dan and Tina, let's transition over to treatment. And let's start with pharmacologic interventions. Dan, any role for acetaminophen? non-steroidals, melatonin, other drugs in the acute treatment of a child that you diagnose with concussion? Yeah, so I think there's a few factors to consider. There's the what I would call hyperacute. So we're seeing them in the ER, they hit their head 20 minutes ago, and the acute the first few days after. And the hyperacute, if because of direct trauma you have necromosis, you have some inflammation and swelling around a point of contact, Certainly, acetaminophen, ibuprofen can be helpful there. Where we get into trouble is when we start prescribing them in a either standing fashion or a prolonged fashion. And medication overuse headache from concussions is a very real phenomenon that Tina often will have to deal with by the time kids get into sports medicine clinic. And generally, and then I'll give you my big asterisk to this, but generally, over-the-counter analgesics are not super helpful for the headache from concussion. It's not a, when we look at, when we look at physiology, it's not um, a pain similar to a, a classic headache. It's due to overuse where rest is really the best. You're having a severe exacerbation of symptoms. A brief period of rest is really going to be more beneficial than those pharmacologic medications. The asterisk there is what Tina mentioned earlier about the overlap between migraine headaches and concussion. There's a big Venn diagram of migraine headaches and concussion. There are kids who have a history of migraines, who concussion makes their migraines worse. There are kids who have never had a migraine headache, who might have gone on to have migraine headaches, but concussion unmasks it. There may be kids who there's something physiologically that happens to their brain that they go on to get migraine headaches because specifically of the concussion. But in those children, our standard migraine therapies do work. So if you're seeing a child who 
maybe had their concussion a week ago, but comes in with headache, noise sensitivity, light sensitivity, it in all ways, shapes, and forms sounds like a migraine, you absolutely can use your acute, acute migraine therapies that you'd use in another adolescent who's having migraine symptoms. But just be really careful when you're talking about your anticipatory guidance of avoiding the medication overuse. Great. Tina, let's talk about the triage complaint that pretty much every patient arriving in your concussion clinic has, and that's persistent post-concussion symptoms. Talk to us about what percent of children with a concussion will have them, and let's talk about treatment, and let's talk about aerobic exercise after concussion, and how that impacts these children with persistent post-concussion symptoms. Yeah, that's a great question, Bob. I mean, I think what we would say now is that based on our work and other folks' work, um, most people are arriving at the fact that 28 days is sort of now accepted as the cutoff for persistent uh, post-concussive symptoms. Less than that um, probably is in that range of a normal spontaneous recovery. Um, And some may be much less than 28 days, um, but 28 days is probably the most widely accepted current cutoff in terms of distinguishing those who are going to recover on their own spontaneously versus those who are persisting and might need a little bit more intervention or support. And so there's that aspect um, of the time definition. That would be different from what we used to think where, you know, back in our generation, I don't know, you know, we all thought everybody was better in a week because they were back playing football that following Sunday, you know. And so I think um, some people are, but uh, some aren't. And with regard to kids, teenagers, and even now collegiate um, aged athletes, young adults from data from the care consortium, uh, 28 days seems to be a reasonable cutoff. In terms of that now, I think what's nice though, um, in terms of what we've learned is that uh, it used to be we would just, you know, give them supportive care and say, hey, give it a little more time because we didn't really have any other interventions that we could do actively. What's great is because we've distilled down a little bit more into what are the actual underlying causes of these persistent symptoms, uh, we're able to target them. So just like Dan said, not only um, do these clinical um, measures and then the physiological measures that we've been interested from a research standpoint, um, not only do they highlight what um, is going on that's wrong um, after a concussion, it gives you a target for intervention. And so that's also very nice. In particular, with regard to exercise, you know, I mean, not to be the dumb jock in the room, but, you know, in sports medicine, we kind of do think that exercise fixes everything, right? <laughs> Almost. Um, uh, it is good for you when you're well. And it turns out that in the right dose, it's actually good for you after a concussion as well. And so I think that ends up being like the key uh, piece to kind of remember is that it's all about dosing um, in the acute phase. And that's important with our athletes too, because you don't want to just say, you know, in the um, acute phase to a kid, sure, go ahead and go exercise because they're used to working out an hour and a half, you know, a day, mm-hmm. hardcore with interval sprints and heavy weightlifting, you know, so you don't want them just jumping right back into that after a concussion. Uh, but what we found, and this is uh, built on work from lots of the people and we've contributed as well, um, in particular, um, John Letty up in Buffalo has done a lot of pioneering work in terms of how to assess this and determine you know, exercise tolerance or intolerance after a concussion. Uh, what this is interesting, um, you know, in terms of what it seems to highlight is that your autonomic function is disrupted after concussion. And so basically, you know, obviously your autonomic function um, actually controls a lot of different things, but exercise intolerance is one of them. And then what was interesting to us from that perspective too is that autonomic function um, also influences your vision, 
Um, and so influences your accommodation, your pupil function, your convergence. And so there may be an interesting intersection there in terms of both of those things. But, you know, what John has found in, in studies that he's done and the, in a multi-center study that we've just um, completed with him is that aerobic exercise that's prescribed in a targeted fashion for an individual after concussion does seem to make a difference in terms of improving their symptoms, improving recovery, um, both in the persistent phase, so greater than 28 days, but also in the acute phase, actually, it turns out. So we are still you know, working on all the timing on that. But um, in this uh, randomized control trial that uh, was a multi-center trial with Buffalo, Boston, um, Children's, and um, us here at CHOP, uh, what we did was enroll kids in a trial where some were randomized to getting an exercise prescription and some were randomized to just a placebo stretching regimen, um, uh, basically as soon as, you know, 48 hours after injury. So the first couple of days, you know, still important to kind of really lay low, give your symptoms a a, a chance to, you know, recover a little bit and and settle down a bit. Um, That probably reflects the biggest metabolic mismatch that's going on after the injury. And so once that gets a little bit better, then you can start to see what your system can handle. And that's where the exercise testing comes in. And so John Letty and his colleagues in Buffalo developed the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test. And that's a hard thing to do in the ER, uh, but um, what we did was we tested them on the treadmill to see how long they could go, what heart rate they could achieve, what symptoms they got, and then they stopped um, after they had a two-point increase in symptoms because we didn't want to cause really severe symptoms or you know problems. Um, and then based on that, that essentially was what um, they were given as a prescription to do, work up to a heart rate that was just below that. Um, so that they wouldn't have big symptoms that would develop, but do that every day, you know, for 15, 20 minutes. And that's what kids did in that intervention. And so, again, the way that we often would practically use it and that way that you could practically use it in the ER would be to say to a child after an injury, you know, take a couple of days off in terms of, you know, all these activities. Well, for one, I always tell all my kids, just in case they forgot, their number one homework is please don't bonk your head, right? Like that's number one homework, right? Then, you know, number two homework, you know, especially coming out of the ER would be take it easy for a couple of days and try not to do anything that really makes your symptoms worse, that really sort of makes that metabolic mismatch headache worse. Um, you know, if you have a smaller workload, you know, then your brain probably can handle it while it's also trying to recover. And then after a couple of days, you know, it's probably done a little bit of bouncing back in terms of brain stamina. Then you can start to add back things in gradual little baby steps. So we'll just say, you know, adding back thinking activities, adding back some physical activity. Um, and that's how we would probably recommend that. And we would love to, and, and we're working on trying to develop um, you know, something that would be a little bit more of a precise um, prescription that could come out of the ER. Um, and so we'll hold that thought and hopefully get back to you um, in a bit with that. But I think in terms of general recommendations, that's how we would work that. But if you had, you know, all the bells and whistles with a treadmill, then you could actually uh, prescribe exercise um, in a pretty um, accurate way that might be more tailored to your patient. Yeah, Tina, it's fascinating to use Dan's analogy with the ankle. You know, you hurt your ankle, rest it for a few days, but then start stretching it and start working out a little bit. And I always tell families, you're dealing with the brain though. So go ahead and resume exercise, but cautiously. And if symptoms, like you said, recur, you need to backtrack a little bit. But it's fascinating that the research going on now is similar to how we treat 
musculoskeletal injuries in the past. And I'm sure some of the pathophysiology is the same. Totally. And we joke a little bit in the office that the neurologists probably are like all rolling their eyes at us because, you know, we're certainly not as smart as they are. But we'll talk about how the brain acts like a muscle, even though that's the wrong answer on any biology quiz that you have, right? And so I think that's a great analogy. And it's a great analogy for kids and especially for our athletes. And it just makes sense. And it helps them have a framework with which to work. Can I augment what Tina said just with some numbers, if that might be helpful? Um, Because I think the numbers are really impressive. So we look at the estimates of number of concussions in America each year, and there are between one and two million. So we think the number of pediatric concussions, huge number, 30% of those are going to have symptoms of 28 days. Do that math, that's 300,000 children. There's Think of the associated morbidity of having concussion-like symptoms for not just 28 days, but the majority of kids who hit one month will still have symptoms at three months. In the study Tina mentioned, the multi-center study of aerobic exercise, there was a 33% reduction in the amount of children who had prolonged symptoms at 28 days. So going from that 32% that we generally see to 21%. So think of that in terms of that sheer number of children, how many children with just an aerobic exercise protocol we might be reducing from having to experience prolonged concussion symptoms. The other thing that I think is really important is, as you're talking about, the anticipatory guidance we give from the ED. And that's it. That's the ballgame for ED concussion management. Just like your cast is your treatment for a broken arm, your corticosteroid is your medication for status asthmaticus, our anticipatory guidance matters. To show you that in numbers, we looked at children who came to the ED and were diagnosed with concussion on their first visit. Those who came to the ED were sent home without a concussion visit and had to come back a second or third or fourth time to get a diagnosis. The ones who were diagnosed on their first visit, they're diagnosed on average five days earlier, recovered 10 days quicker than the group who had to come back. And we look at the percentage that had symptoms at one month, 57% of those who took multiple visits to get their diagnosis versus only 31% who were diagnosed on the first visit. So what we say matters, what we tell families matters. That is awesome. Tina, second impact syndrome. We've been talking about this for decades. Is that true? Is there a time where a second concussion in the period when a child is at most risk can lead to what we call second impact syndrome? Or is that phrase sort of passe now? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think what's really important is that basically we all define what we mean uh, before we use the phrase. Because I think if we just throw it around, then everybody gets confused and then we don't we know nothing. <laughs> and so I think if we're going to say second impact syndrome in the, I don't know, I guess classic stereotypical sense historically was that a smaller impact in a vulnerable window resulting in a catastrophic injury and not just a concussion or a worse concussion. Um, And so if you define second impact syndrome that way, what we would say is there's a couple of interesting things actually just from a history of medicine standpoint that we know that there have been events that have happened that were catastrophic. And the thought was that second impact syndrome was at play. From what we've learned about the pathophysiology and the cerebral blood flow dysregulation, you know, hypothetically, pathophysiologically speaking, it is plausible, absolutely, that there would be a vulnerable window. I think it's very, very interesting that case reports and even, you know, the catastrophic, you know, sports injury database that is, you know, um, maintained um, every year really has had very few reports of that in recent years, especially since 
the institution of um, basically universal across the country return to play laws, where there has to be essentially um, a symptom-free waiting period before you return to play that is an active waiting period of actually testing to make sure you're jumping through all the appropriate hoops passing all the appropriate, you know, physiological tests to make sure that that cerebral blood flow um, regulation has recovered. Um, that seems to be, you know, maybe not a completely, you know, secular unrelated trend to the fact that we see less second impact syndrome. And so, um, you know, in sports medicine, that is, you know, one thing that we all fear the most probably of any injury in sports medicine. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, um, you know, we do um, feel that that return to play process um, has done a lot for a lot of different things, uh, but in particular may have had an impact um, in the fact that second impact syndrome does not seem to be quite as common or frequent, not that it was ever common, but not um, as frequently reported as maybe it had been in the past. And so there's that. If you talk about having a second hit. So this is where I think a lot of, you know, patients and families and, and even physicians and, you know, clinicians and other allied health professionals will sometimes throw around the term second impact syndrome, meaning, you know, they were still getting better from a concussion. They got hit in the head again, and they have like symptoms that are worse again, and maybe it takes them longer to get better the second time. I don't think I would call that second impact syndrome because that's just not the classic, you know, sort of catastrophic outcome that we worry about. Is it technically speaking, you know, a second impact, you know, that has a worse outcome, you know, with a longer concussion? Yes. Uh, but I probably wouldn't use that phrase just because of sort of the, you know, um, pictures that it automatically evokes when you use that phrase. Do we think that getting a second concussion when you're not fully recovered, could it make your recovery worse? We do worry about that. Um, does that always happen? Not always, but we do worry about that. And so I think that that's where I would just say it's just important, you know, whatever semantic you use, you want to make sure you like clearly define the, you know, um, boundaries of that semantic and then go forward. And, and that's what I would say about um, classic second impact syndrome. Great, great. Well, Dan and Tina, I want to thank you, but I have one last thing we want to talk about. And that's sort of we've the topic, concussions. Some people refer to it as the C word. In other words, it's a concussion. Okay. And I want to introduce a phrase to you. Maybe you've heard about it. Maybe you haven't called the nocebo effect. So much like the positive aspects of the placebo effect can be useful for a clinician to help a patient recover, the nocebo effect can result in worsening of symptoms and prolonged recovery time. And those are due to negative expectations from healthcare information delivered by doctors, nurses, trainers, and now, more importantly, social media. So, Dan, I'll start with you, and then, Tina, you'll get the final word. Tell us, starting from the ER, you said 30% have prolonged symptoms, but maybe we should say there's a 70% chance you're going to be better in a week or two. So tell us how to negate the nocebo effect once we diagnose a patient, Dan in the ED, and Tina, once they see you in your concussion clinic. Dan? Again, where anticipatory guidance is our holy grail. You, this is not a diagnosis where you say you have a diet, you have a concussion, follow up with your primary care provider, see you later. You need to spend that extra, and it might only be two minutes or three minutes, but that extra time is invaluable for families. So the connotations associated with concussion, the symptoms associated with concussion, the framing of concussion which is you are not, as Tina alluded to, a prisoner of this diagnosis. You are not helpless in its recovery. There is an active role that we know, and this is where you get to introduce aerobic activity, 
and rehabilitation as a way to recover. There's a role for that in your recovery. When I talk to families about the pendulum swing of what we've done with concussion, and while Tina said, I'm young, I'm not too young that I don't remember the time where if you got injured in sports, you sucked it up and you went back in. That was me in high school growing up in the 90s. That's what you did. And then there was this period where we got so terrified as healthcare providers that we were causing permanent brain damage to any child who gets hit in the head at all. They were told to completely abstain from any activity, sports, school, video games, phones, until they felt completely better. That's every validating thing of being a school-aged child or an adolescent. So no kidding, you put them in a dark room and their symptoms get worse and you prescribe more rest. And this actually has been studied and has a phrase um, from Mark DeFazio in DC, which is called the activity restriction cascade, where you prescribe rest, symptoms get worse, you prescribe more rest. And I mentioned earlier that one of the really important things we've learned from COVID is the importance of being in person for school and what that does, not just educationally and cognitively for children, but socially and emotionally. So not just a prisoner of symptoms, you have a role in early exercise, and then we want you back in school. Maybe it's only listening days. There's a list of accommodations that we have created for families to get children back into school as quickly as possible. But spending that four or five minutes with the family, outlining all of that, not focusing on that 30% are still going to be symptomatic in a month, but here are the tools that I can equip you with as a healthcare provider, leaving the ER, where you might not be able to see your pediatrician for a few days or a week, especially right now where it's impossible to see any doctor given the volumes that every practice is experiencing um, in primary care pediatrics. So here are the tools that I'm going to equip you with. And here's the positive spin that I can provide by making you not feel like you're a prisoner to this diagnosis you have a role in the recovery, and we have a lot of great data to support all of these active rehabilitation techniques. Great. Tina, you get the final word. Tell us how your pearls on how to mitigate this nocebo effect on concussions. Wow. No pressure at all, right? Um, I do think it ends up being a little bit, you know, almost like a like you're in upside down world or backwards world, like in stranger things, because uh, we find ourselves in this position a lot in sports medicine uh, when we're talking about concussions, where on the one hand, we want to take them seriously. We don't think that they're uh, things that we just sort of blow off. But on the other hand, they're absolutely fully recoverable um, and something that we can manage um, that you can have great outcomes from. And so I think that ends up being the odd, you know, sort of being on both ends of the spectrum. We want to support our kids. These are real. But if you actually take care of it right away, that's really actually the best thing to do in terms of getting the best outcome is to take ser- take it seriously right now, uh, manage it with the best um, approaches that we know how right now, um, and they'll continue to get better with time. And then you have the best outcomes if you actually take them seriously. And so I think that that sort of ends up being a little bit the almost um, unexpected message that families don't think of. And so um, I think that that's really um, how we try to handle it, that yes, this is something that you want to take seriously, uh, but if you take it seriously, you should have really great outcomes and we don't have to worry about those long outcomes. And there's ways that we can uh, handle any bumps along the road, you know, literally and figuratively. Um, And that's probably how we would approach it. But I definitely agree with Dan that taking just that extra couple of minutes to set some expectations, whether it's in either direction, right? We're going to be fine in a day or two. It might take a little bit longer. I always tell my kids, this always takes longer than we would like it to, but it will get there, right? Um, But then there's also the other end of the spectrum where you're like, it's all doom and gloom. It's like, 
no, you know, you're going to still have to like go to school and you're still going to have to get back to activities and we'll manage it, you know, as we're getting back to school and getting back to activities. And so it probably ends up being a little bit like parenting, you know, when it comes right down to it, you know, it's not the end of the world, you know, and it's also, you know, not like, you know, heaven on earth either, you know, it's just like, you know, real life. And so, um, and so I think in a way, I think, um, I do think that modeling that as a physician for parents too, there's a lot of anxiety in parents and there's been some concern and research, you know, um, as to how parents, you know, respond to this. And, you know, we kind of all know, you know, sort of like the standard trope of, you know, if a toddler hits their head and they kind of look at you like, should I be upset or should I not be upset with this falling down and, you know, getting injured? And if the parent is like, oh my gosh, that's a disaster. The kid's like, you know, crying in a big mess. And you're, and, or if the parent's like, that's okay, you're all right. You know, there's no blood. Um, Then the kid's like, okay, I'm fine. And they keep moving and keep going and on their merry way. And so I think there is a little bit of making sure that um, the adults in the room feel comfortable we take it seriously, but we can manage, you know, and this is very manageable and very recoverable and going to have a really good outcome. As I joke and I tease my teenagers in the office, I'll say, this is really, you know, something we got to take seriously. We're going to give you all the accommodations you need to get back to all your activities. Um, but, you know, after all of this, you're still going to have to grow up go to college, get a job, pay taxes and take care of your parents in the old age. You know, so you're not going to get out of any of that stuff because you had a concussion because that's just not what that kind of, what this injury is like. And so that's where um, I tease them about that because, you know, that's what I expect from my kids. I don't know about you, but <laughs> so. Awesome words. Well, Tina, I know you have teenage children. Dan, I know you're recently married and hopefully in the years to come, you'll have children. Let me ask you both a personal question, not only for your children and your future children, Dan, but nieces, nephews, Tina, would you let them play football or if they want to go into boxing? What would you tell your children and your nieces or nephews? Yeah, this is really where, you know, again, I think people are shocked when they find out that, you know, so everybody knows I'm a concussion doctor. And so I think if they don't know me, if they're first just first meeting me and they don't know me very well, they assume that I am anti-football, anti-hockey, anti-boxing. And and actually, Dan is going to laugh because I don't think he even knows this yet. But um, So I have two boys who played ice hockey. And actually, that's why I got interested in concussion. I love ice hockey. And I love football. And if they wanted to play football, I probably would have let them play football. But there are probably a few caveats that I would add to that. Um, but my daughter right now is a junior at Cornell, and she's taking boxing. Of course, it's just training and she's not getting anything, any blows to the head. Um, and boxing is a little bit different, obviously, because the whole goal is to give someone a concussion. But we have had actually conversations in our sports medicine, um, you know, uh, pediatric interest group about whether it's ethical or not for us to cover junior golden gloves. Right. Um, and it's tough because, you know, there are a lot of issues with regard to um, disparities and, and boxing gyms, boxing training is outstanding, right? It's great training. You know, the hits to the head, you know, are, are sort of what we have some trouble with. And Junior Golden Gloves has certainly gone to um, lengths to try and, um, you know, work on having, you know, rules and conditions and return to play plans, etc. cetera. Uh, but boxing is still difficult, but um, it is challenging when you're talking about trying to prevent a mild traumatic brain injury, but a family wants their kid in a gym because it prevents them from being in a gang and being shot and killed, you know? And so those are 
I don't know how to weigh those cost benefits. Those are very challenging. And, and again, we have a lot of shared decision-making conversations with our families in the office. You know, with regard to hockey, obviously, I let my kids play hockey. Um, you know, hockey has changed in the U.S. in that they raise a checking age from 11 to 13. And I think that was the right thing to do from a developmental standpoint. Um, with regard to football, many people may have seen the recent public service announcement that Brett Favre did with regard to the whole um, pitch of uh, flag till 14. And it's very compelling. And I think from that standpoint, you know, you can see what happened with U.S. soccer. Um, they made the decision to raise the heading age to 12 and not based on any science, uh, but based on a lawsuit, you know, because that's it's America after all. Um, and so there's that aspect. But is that the wrong thing to do? Probably not. You know, is heading the primary skill in soccer? You know, it's not the primary skill that you have to be learning at four or five. And I think one would argue that in football, it's the same, that tackling, you don't have to learn how to tackle, you know, at five or six. Um, you know, is it 11? Is it 12? Is it 14? You know, I don't know. We don't know. But um, should we be moving in that direction? Probably, you know. And so I think that's sort of where I would say I am absolutely not um, uh, opposed um, to raising those ages. And I certainly am not interested in banning any of these sports. I think they definitely have a role. Um, and we can make them safer. And that's really our goal. Great. Perfect, Tina. Dan, recently married. Let me give you one piece of advice. Happy wife, happy life. Uh, in years to come, Dan, your wife says, our children are not playing football. You say what? I mean, I say yes, honey, to everything. But I also will say, I say this all the time to anyone who asks, bring up Tina. Tina's a hockey mom. And I say the one of the world experts in concussions, children play hockey. And it's a nuanced question, and there should probably not be universal, with some exceptions that we've talked about, banning of any of these sports that comes down to an individual decision that is between a medical provider and the family, and you got to weigh risks and benefits with everything. To that question, though, I say yes, honey. <laughs> That's right. Great. Thank you, Dan and Tina, uh, for your expertise. And on behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank you both for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us, Bob. Thanks for having us. <laughs>